0: Hello friends and fellow readers, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Today, we'll be looking at the 1930 detective classic, The Maltese Falcon. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by my brother in books, my cousin across the pond, the Effie to my Sam Spade, Joe (laughs) Joe Cairo, I was about to say, (laughs) Joshua Taylor.
1: (laughs) Hey, that's me. I would definitely rather be Effie to uh, Sam Spade than, <laughs> yeah. to, like, Joel Cairo to <laughs> Casper Gutman. So that's fine with me.
0: I'll accept that. I'm good with Good, good. That was a mistake, yeah. Good to see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you too. It's been uh, it's been a few weeks since we closed Shop on the Moonstone, and it was nice to get this one, a smaller book, and uh, nice to get this smaller book read and uh, ready to go here for, for everybody who enjoys going down the pipes with us.
1: Yeah, it was a bit fortuitous because I had plans this weekend, but they got canceled, and so you know, mm. why not just do mm-hmm. record this episode now and get one off the, on the production line wherever fine podcasts are downloaded and uh, for our listeners' uh,
0: pleasure. So there we go. Mm-hmm. And you know, buddy, this is a big text. It's one that we've been dancing around for a couple of years, but we were locked uh, firmly ensconced in in the world of Chandler, mm-hmm. and we went for um, we we went to kind of hiatus with Dashiell Hammett, but. Uh, when we decided that Hammett was going to be uh, up in the season, we, we questioned a couple of his works, but we decided with the uh, the seminal Maltese Falcon, didn't we?
1: Yeah, I think it was a good choice. I mean, you got to, you know, if it's, it has its place like in the terms of like film noir, in terms of the detective mm-hmm. novel. Um, Sam Spade is up there with Philip Marlowe, with uh, Mike Hammer, all the famous like crime fiction pulp, mm-hmm. you know, detective characters, right? So we figured mm-hmm. we might as Gruff well. Gruff the crime dog. Yeah. Tackle, <laughs> <laughs> mcgruff the crime dog yeah that, him too yeah absolutely a long tradition <laughs> of uh of heroes for sure uh crime fighting heroes yes so <laughs> sorry I, he just came into my mind. I, I don't think sam spade takes a bite out of crime though i think he takes a <laughs> bite out of other things in life but uh yeah
0: yeah yeah and we're gonna get into that today for sure Mm-hmm. Anyway, listen, uh, it's good to see you, pal. A uh, couple of weeks since we've closed shop on the Moonstone, which was a real, real adventure, not just in, in a, terms of it was a corker. Uh, reading, I say. But yeah, it was certainly a corker. Had a lot of fun doing that one with you. And uh, yeah, good
1: episode. And hopefully I was listening to it recently. And uh, I just think we put mm-hmm. out a really quality episode in that if I may say so myself, if I do say so. Yeah, if I do say so for myself. Is that the expression?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Not for
1: Not four. Yeah. If I do say so myself. Indeed. Edit around that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I will. Chop, 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 chop. (laughs) Anyway. So, yeah, uh, everybody, thanks very much for joining us on this little adventure. Uh, If you have read The Maltese Falcon before, then we think you're in for a treat. If you haven't read The Maltese Falcon before, then we've provided a 20-minute summary of the story's action for you, which will be coming up shortly, but not Mm -hmm. before... We do our customary fast facts on the writer and the publication. And this time, Mr. Taylor, you have pulled the bill for that responsibility.
1: So, our man, Dashiell Hammett, the author of The Maltese Falcon, this perennial figure in a detective fiction, was born in St. Mary's County, Maryland, on May twenty seventh, eighteen ninety four, mm. his father was wasn't really a, a well known person. Uh, well, there's not much information okay. on his father. We know his mother came from right. old Maryland stock, like from an old family, mm-hmm, supposedly mm-hmm. from the probably from the founding of the colony. And he had an older sister and a younger brother. And throughout his early childhood, he grew up in Philadelphia and Baltimore. Um, the reason why I guess he was in these big cities is because his education was very brief. He left school at 13 years old, and he worked various jobs. Up until 1922, he worked for the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Oh, right. So this could provide some somewhat of a background to his writings. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially like his characters, the Malt- in the Maltese Falcon, like Sam Spade, for instance, or his other character, the Continental Op uh, who was like a no named kind of Clint Eastwood type detective character that went around solving mm-hmm. various cases and crimes and getting involved in situations. Yeah. With an so orangutan. That's basically, with an orangutan. No, not, not, nothing like that. <laughs> I only, I only evoke Clint Eastwood because I was thinking of him as like a man with no name, a drifter kind of character who yeah, comes in and yeah. steals problem, you know, solves problems kind of like an, uh, old school Jack Reacher type. Um, okay. Gotcha. But he did serve in the first world war, um, during the time when America was involved in the war, which was very short, mm-hmm. um, for the U.S. Army's Motor Ambulance Corps, and during this time, he contracted the Spanish flu, and then, which later mm-hmm. kind of developed into tuberculosis. Okay. Uh, during his convo- convalescence, he met Josephine Dolan, who was a nurse, and they fell in love and married. They had two daughters, and upon his diagnosis of TB. He had to isolate from his family um, as much as possible. So this put his strain mm, on the marriage. Familiar. Yeah. And the couple separated. But mm-hmm. he continued to support his family with his various jobs and his writing career.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, tough. that's tough. He first published
1: in the magazine. Yeah, it, it, it is. And you can kind of see sort of like... The mindset, maybe you know, of what he was going into. Yeah,
0: well, I think I think it's easier for us to see it to see that mindset today because of the you know the context with COVID, right? We can understand oh, yeah, self isolation, but but still, I mean, it's it's a little bit different, right? Because it's not like the world around you is is sick. It certainly was with the Spanish flu, but um, yeah. with um, with TB, you just got to have that that kind of penury, that isolation, huh? Yeah, unfortunately.
1: Hmm. He first published in a magazine called The Smart Set, and he, of course, drew on his experiences as a Pinkerton detective in San Francisco, uh, which he ended up, like, with his career, ended up in San Francisco, essentially. But by 1922, he became disillusioned with them, especially for how they treated, like, they were breaking all the general strikes. They were using a lot of violence to do so, because they were basically hired thugs Mm -hmm. by the big corporations to break these strikes. And this is sort of when you kind of see him picking up a very kind of left-wing view towards politics. And uh, this would... Interesting. This, this is something that would sort of haunt him, but also compel him further in his life.
0: All right. Yeah. So like, like a post-war disillusionment, but um, amplified a bit by his own personal struggle with illness and such.
1: Exactly. Like he was very keen on being able, he was very keen on being a Pinkerton and, and solving crimes and doing de, do, doing the detective work and, and whatnot, right? Like, I'm sure he was keen on that and he appreciated that. But when it was used to take on the working man, I think that's sort of what
0: mm. made
1: him mm-hmm. leave, mm-hmm. made him realize that he was nothing more than a glorified security guard for corporations. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he wasn't very interested in the police, probably because of all the corruption. I mean, I think we talked about with, um, the, we did, when we did Raymond Chandler, I think we talked about how Hammett uh, had all, knew I had all these connections with like, um, various investigation, investigate, you know, various police services throughout America. So he mm-hmm. knew a lot of the stories that went on there and stuff with his experience at the Pinkertons. So he drew on this in real mm-hmm. life, obviously. And this came to, mm. uh, so the people that he knew in his life, they came to sort of inhabit the characters that he was writing. Like he was sketching yeah. out people that he would run into in his profession and, mm-hmm. and in his life. So yeah. with this, like, you can see, like in in his novels, like Red Harvest and The Dane Curse, and the ones that involve the Continental mm-hmm. Op, you can see how he begins to develop um, this attitude and about a, about righteous figures taking on, you know, corruption and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah. he was slowly becoming a master of authentic dialogue, and people were noticing this, like his dialogue. Even even you have to admit that you know, whatever we think about the overall story and the writing of the Maltese Falcon, his dialogue is pretty bang on. And uh, it's the best window we have into how he characterizes uh, people in his okay. stories. <clears throat> so his early novels featured a PI, as I talked about, known as the Continental Op, and he published these in Black Mask Magazine. There's our Black Mask from our Raymond Chandler show, mm-hmm. uh, Season. A title that we here Lighting the pipes, you know, and our listeners should know very well. So, Black Mask was a pulp crime magazine, one of the first of its kind. He would have a falling out with editor Philip C. Cody and played at being an, an ad copywriter for a San Francisco jeweler. But by 1926, he made peace with Black Mask once a new editor, Joseph Thompson, was hired. So we have this struggling magazine with Hammett at its leads as his lead storyteller would soon take off in this period. Red Harvest, his first novel, was published, followed by The Dane Curse. Then came The Maltese Falcon and The Glass Key, which were serialized in Black Mask before being revised and published as novels by Knopf. Mm -hmm. Though Falcon was dedicated to Hammett's estranged wife, Josephine, his next book, The Glass Key, was dedicated to another writer, Nell Martin, whom he had fallen in love with, though the affair didn't last. His final fiction novel was The Thin Man, published in 1934. So he also created The Thin Man, the, the famous series with, um, I think it's Tyrone Power and Myrna Loy, mm-hmm. I think. There was a whole bunch of movies with them. Um, mm. they, weren't really, they weren't really noir, though. They were more like just kind of like adventure stories. You know what I mean?
0: Okay. I think, yeah, I,
1: think, I think they were like a couple solving crime or something like that. Anyways, but he published his final novel, The Thin Man, in 1934. So I guess, you know, living with TB was a burden at some point.
0: No, would be. And right? though
1: he ceased writing fiction, Hammett devoted most of his time to left-wing politics. He was a staunch anti-fascist and was a member of the Communist Party by 1937. And by the 1940s, he was living with a woman named Lillian Hellman, a playwright. One of her plays, *Watch on the Rhine*, was, was to be adapted to a motion picture film, and he took up his pen again to write the screenplay. And he scored an Oscar nomination, but mm, he lost nice to. Uh, a film with an actor that starred in one of his adaptations, of Humphrey Bogart, <laughs> uh, to Casablanca. So Casablanca uh, won the Oscar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well deserved, you, you have to say. Sure. I mean, I haven't yeah. seen Death on the Rhine, but I mean, Casablanca, come on. It's like one of the best scripts ever written. Um, he served as a code breaker in the Aleutian Islands despite his political leanings and his physical shortcomings. Regrettably, his, this experience uh, worsened his health and he developed emphysema. Mm -hmm. after the war he was elected president of the Civil Rights Congress which was devoted to the protection of citizens arrested for political reasons of course once the Red Scare began to spread across the US the CRC was designated a communist organization he was brought to testify before a US district court judge and was questioned by a US attorney who was a known communist hunter he pled the fifth refusing to name names and was held in contempt of court he served some time in a federal prison cleaning toilets but found himself arraigned again by none other than Huac Uh, that's the house of un-American activities Mm -hmm. committee, uh, headed by Joseph McCarthy. And he testified to his own activities, but did not name names. He was blacklisted as a result. Like many were, he spent Mm -hmm. the fifties at a cottage, you know, his health worsening year by year, his tuberculosis, uh, but also an, an ever creeping alcoholism, uh, which he acquired working at the advertising agency in San Francisco when he left black mask in, um, in, in that brief period. And for a couple of years, he was, until he got back to with Black Mask, and I guess he went to the bottle. You know, a lot of problems going on with his life mm-hmm. at that time. His marriage falling apart, can't see his children, you know. So it's a bleak period for him. So you can see why he, unfortunately, went that direction. And even, and of course, after being, you know, blacklisted and going back to it even further, that just made his, made things worse. So his royalties dried up. His books were out of print. And he was too tired to get back into writing, though he did try. And Hellman supported him all the way. But she had her own, she was writing her own plays and and whatnot in her own writings. But unfortunately, you know, it wasn't enough. In November of 1959, uh, Dashiell Hammett was diagnosed with lung cancer. And he died at Lenox Hill Hospital on January 10th, 1961. But Mm -hmm. despite being blacklisted, because McCarthy had since fallen by that time, he was buried with full honors sure. at Arlington National Cemetery.
0: Interesting. Um, How much of an influence did he have on his uh, second wife or his partner's work, the playwright?
1: Definitely some influence because they were apparently a well-known like literary couple, almost like, Fitz, like F. Mm-hmm. F. Fitzgerald and Zelda. Uh, there was like a movie made in the late 70s, I think I forget the name of it, but it was all about um, Dashiell Hammett. And then there was another series, miniseries made uh, called Dash and Lily. And it was all about their relationship.
0: Okay. I just wonder because he was struggling to write himself then. And so, you know, I presume that he would have been involved uh, conceptually or maybe as, you know, a soft editor to her her own drama scripts or something like that, you know.
1: It's very possible. And he did do the screenplay for her uh, her play, right? He adapted it to a film. So he did do that. It's quite
0: sad though. Quite sad.
1: Yeah, interesting figure. That's that's for sure. Mm. And now that you know, you know that he wrote about what he's like, he was very kind of like sketching out what he saw in real life. And you can kind of see how that goes into his writings. And uh, we'll talk about his style. And I think mm-hmm. just reading about him and uh, who he was as a person, his style makes a lot more sense for me now than it did before I knew about these details. So might have influenced my Grading a little mm-hmm. bit in that the scoring respect. a bit, not, yeah. not not much, but you know it was definitely influential. Now, in 1990, the Crime Writers right. Association they ranked The Maltese Falcon the tenth in their top 100 crime novels of all time. Then, the Mystery Writers Guild of America in 1995 on their big rankings they listed it third. So, <laughs> it's interesting. And of The Maltese Falcon, there was adapted as a film four times. So wow. you have Maltese Falcon, 1931, which was a pre-Hays Code Hollywood movie. Uh, then you had Satan Met a Lady, 1936, which was done as a comedy, and it had a very uh, young Bette Davis in it, oh, um, yeah. yeah, as Bridget O'Shaughnessy, although I think their names changed uh, a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the famous John Huston adaptation, 1941, with Bogart and Laurie, Sidney Greenstreet, Mary Astor. The, the Well, the most well-known one, right? And also, also like the seminal mm-hmm. film noir of that period. A spoof sequel made in 1975 called The Black Bird, and it featured George C- Segal, And it also had the original 1941 actors, Lee, uh, sorry, Lee Patrick, who played Effie, and Alicia Cook Jr., who played Wilmer, reprising their roles. So I'm really curious how cool. Wilmer comes back, like w- knowing what <laughs> yeah. he did, like... How is he Knowing still alive? What we know, but yeah. I guess it's a, it's a spoof, right? But like,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: I, I don't know. Like, did he get a plea deal or something? Like, that's the only thing. I'm. It's hard to say. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I like to, I'm yeah. curious. I'm just curious to read mm-hmm. about the background, I, not to watch the movie, but just to read about you know a synopsis or something about how the heck Wilmer is still around.
0: That's right. I, I get <laughs> yeah, a good old for Wilmer,
1: sure, but like, yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. She's a careerist, <laughs> anyway. But uh, exactly, Wilmer, I don't exactly. Know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nice work, nice one, yeah, man. It's interesting. He's a writer that um certainly had his ups and downs, mostly sounds like downs, though a gradual slide from sickness to sickness and from mental strength um or, or at least well we shouldn't assume too much, but from um you know from confidence and involvement, participation and patriotism to outcast and i mean it's really sad and then mental health going to alcoholism like there's a sadness to not a lot of figures like this not famous writers alone but you know these individuals who the men and women that serve for their country and then then the wider public criticizes the conflict they kind of criticize the sacrifice as well which, which should never necessarily be the case
1: the human mind is not as flexible as some people think it can be, you know like and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're loyal to or your family be, yeah. you're loyal to your to your to your town to your you know to your community and everyone has their own mm-hmm. forms of nationalism right as as we can see like we have dashiel mm-hmm. Hammett who believed that that you know he was very anti-fascist so he was probably very up he was probably very against the kind of like the corporate fascism that was taken over America post nineteen forty five right because the, the war machine was so huge and then it became the military industrial complex and it goes into the Korean War and all that sort of, and and then eventually into Vietnam so you can kind of see the attitude that Dashiell Hammett has but at the same time you also kind of are understanding why people are skeptical of of, of someone like Dashiell Hammett, because even though yeah, totally apparently he was very critical of marxism like he believed in like uh like you know the rights of labor and and that sort of stuff and so he was but but so the communist party was in a way of, an, of a way of giving him that sort of uh, mouthpiece to talk about stuff like that but he was mm-hmm. also very critical mm-hmm. of marxism and definitely he was against stalinism which he saw as fascism so it's a tough thing situation to be in and it's understandable some people when they're being led by people who are mis who are misleading them, saying, "Oh well, these people are are red are red is the Red Scare," you know, like they're monsters who are going, mm-hmm. to, who are going to to destroy America. So you, you you want to side with the people who who are not going who are not going to destroy America, who are going to protect them. So that's understandable, mm-hmm. and that's why how McCarthy was able to get so much power at the time, right?
0: Right. Well, that's uh, the fast facts on the Maltese Falcon and a good introduction to the writer as well, Dashiell Hammett. Uh, and I think now, buddy, if uh, if it suits you, we can transition over to a plot summary on the story, and this will help those of you listening who do not know um, or have perhaps forgotten since first reading uh, all the details of the story. Uh, this will help you with that, and then meet you on the other side to go through our pipes scoring. Uh, the summary is about 20 minutes, so if you know the story top to bottom and you're just here for the chat and the banter, then hey, fast forward 20 minutes and we'll get you on the other side. Enjoy. Though set in San Francisco, our story begins in the Middle Ages, and the grisly, outstretched conflict surrounding the Holy Wars, better known as the Crusades. It's into this hungover and precarious setting, the early 16th century Middle East to be precise, that we must travel to meet our story's titular MacGuffin. A short history lesson will set the stage nicely. It's 1523, and the militant order from the hospital of St. John of Jerusalem has just been banished from Rhodes by Suleiman the Magnificent, whose Ottoman Empire had had enough of their irritating ways. Not wanting to further upset the Sultan, the order settles in Crete for seven years, and then persuades Charles V to give them safer lands in Malta, Gozo, and Tripoli. In exchange for the real estate, a tribute would be paid each year by these Knights of Malta. More specifically, a falcon, decorated in the finest art and luxury, was to be their present. Having liquidated the Saracens quite thoroughly over the years, the order was very wealthy, despite its itinerant ways, or perhaps because of them. And it could draw on its bounty to pay such tributes. On the occasion of their first gift, they sent Charles V a golden bird bejeweled with luxurious stones. Turkish slaves made it in the castle of Sant'Angelo in Rome before being delivered to Big Charlie in a galley commanded by a French knight. Well, the bird never reached its intended nest. Instead, It seemed destined to be lifted by pirates, English adventurers, and endure a trip through northern Italy before showing up in France during the 18th century. By this time, its value had been cloaked by a black enamel. The concealment worked. A Greek dealer eventually located it in the early 20th century, before it was traced to a suburb of Istanbul and the home of a Russian general, Kermodov. Accounts would suggest that this Russian general had no idea how valuable his little bird really was, but others out there did, and one of them had sent people over to retrieve it. For the acerbic private detective Sam Spade, however, this history couldn't be further from his mind, or important day-to-day business, both of which are more likely focused on keeping his partner, Miles Archer, from finding out that he's sleeping with his wife. But even this priority gets shunted to the side when the beautiful Miss Wonderly enters his office and hires Spade and Archer to follow a Mr. Floyd Thursby. According to Wonderly, her sister had run away from New York with this crooked man, and she's concerned for her well-being. Neither of the men really buy her story, but with the money on offer, it doesn't appear too difficult or dangerous an exploit to follow up. Archer volunteers to take the first shift that night, but ends up shot. Thursby, too, is killed, and it isn't long before Spade becomes a suspect. If the police discover that he's been sleeping with Iva, Miles' wife, then the husband's death could be pinned easily on him. The next day, Spade is surprised by Iva at his office, where, after kissing her with non-committal poise, he sends her away and tries to convince her that he had nothing to do with Miles' death. She's a pretty love-struck victim, however, and of the stupidly blind variety to boot, He tells her to keep her distance, or they could both be in bother. Spade's resourceful secretary, Effie, meanwhile, is asked to remove Miles's things and to repaint the door. He visits Miss Wonderly's hotel, but learns that she's gone to a new one, the Coronet, and he's to ask for a Miss LeBlanc. Two hotels, two different names. Spade's worry, like the reader's intrigue, is starting to ratchet it up a bit, Both parties also know by now that there's much more to Miss Wonderly than her phony missing sister report. When pressured, Wonderly admits to lying and reveals that her name is really Bridget O'Shaughnessy, and that Thursby was her partner of sorts. He betrayed her in some dealing or another, but she's very light on the details. She appeals still to Spade for help, but offers no information, credible history, or explanation that he can possibly hang on or check out in building trust. Aside from her beauty and sex appeal, it's tough to see how anybody would stand by O'Shaughnessy. But, men being men and dogs chasing dogs, Spade agrees to do what he can for her. Later that day, he's visited by Joel Cairo, a Middle Eastern man who offers him $5,000 that's more like $82,000 in today's money, folks, to recover for him a black figurine of a bird that has recently arrived in San Francisco spade dismisses effie for the day and settles down for what should be an interesting conversation with joel cairo instead he finds himself with a gun barrel pointed at his face it doesn't take much for spade to disarm cairo with an elbow and knock him out cold though he then proceeds to rifle through the man's pockets in an effort to better understand his weak assailant but he finds only a hotel card and theater tickets still it's enough to keep track on him when he comes to Cairo refuses to reveal for whom he is working, but insists being serious about the offer. Spade agrees to look into it, sends Cairo away, and has a drink before hitting Herbert's Grill on Powell Street for supper. He notices a young boy following him. He's also there at the Hotel Belvedere, where Cairo was shacked up, and again on a streetcar that Spade uses to get to the Coronet. He smells trouble, youth-sized maybe, but trouble all the same. At Bridget's hotel... Spade drops some leading questions and learns that Cairo isn't a stranger at all. In fact, when he mentions the job offer of tracking down this blackbird for five grand, O'Shaughnessy grows nervous and asks for his help in setting up a three-way meeting with Cairo. Spade agrees to do so that night at his apartment. Iva, meanwhile, is still snooping around and has discovered Bridget. Her jealousy gets the better of her, and Spade again has to state the obvious in ushering her away until the death of Miles can be understood and cleared up. Before Cairo arrives for the meeting, Spade kills time in his apartment with Bridget by telling her a story about a man named Flitcraft, who, unhappy with his life, just randomly changed it one day after a beam from a construction site nearly fell on and killed him. The story feels a little shoehorned in by Hammett, but is clearly being used by the writer. And by the character of Spade, to reinforce the theme of disorder and chaos, which promotes the idea that life is not neat or always justifiable, and more importantly, it could end at any time. Cairo tells Spade, when he arrives, that he's prepared to pay for the statue, but Bridget insists that she doesn't have it yet. Both seem to be afraid of a man called G. The two start to argue just as Lieutenant Dooney and Tom Polas show up from the police, eager to talk to Spade about what's been going on, especially with the death of his partner and the man, Thursby. Spade refuses to let them in, and scoffs at the accusation of his affair with Miles' wife. Just as they're about to leave, a scream is heard from inside the apartment, and the police enter. What they see is pretty outrageous, both Cairo and O'Shaughnessy blaming each other for egregious attacks. Spade knows that the cops are close to pulling them in, so he pretends that they all know each other and they're play-acting, having seen an opportunity to wind up the fuzz. The cops don't believe the story, but the others all play along pretty well with Spade, so they have no grounds for arrest. Still, they take Cairo in for questioning, and the meeting is cut short. Spade tries to get the truth from Bridget, but isn't sure, still, how much of what she gives him is a lie. She describes the Falcon statue a little, and says that Thursby and Cairo had offered her $750 to help get the statue from a Russian, Kermadov. How exactly, she wouldn't say but we can assume some feminine charms were involved. Spade says he doesn't believe her, but she doesn't share any more information. Again, we reach a point where most logical folk would just walk away, but Spade being intrigued, lustful, and unwilling to drop something this big if there's more than a shred of truth in it, keeps Bridget close. Very close, in fact. They sleep together. And the next morning, Spade sneaks out and visits her hotel room, searching it over meticulously while she snoozes in his bed. No black bird is uncovered. He returns to his apartment, breakfasts with Bridget, and then drops her at the hotel. He hops a cab to the Belvedere, where the sleeked youth is again sitting and observing him. Fed up, he confronts the young man, and his ties to the mysterious Mr. G are confirmed. Cairo enters shortly after this, and reveals that the police kept him in all night, but nothing came from it. Spade shares the fact that there was no black bird in Bridget's apartment. When he finally arrives at his office, Effie informs Spade that Mr. G called him and got his message, which clearly means that the irritating youth did indeed work for him. Meanwhile, Bridget shows up, afraid, and stating that her room had been searched. Spade plays dumb and asks Effie if she would mind to put her up for a few days. Always the sport, Effie agrees. Mr. G calls back within moments of the lady's departing. His name is Casper Gutman, and he wants to meet in 15 minutes. Before Spade leaves, Iva bursts in and confesses that she sent the cops to his apartment last night out of jealousy. She said that Phil Archer had found out about their affair and had gone to the police to inform them. Spade is irritated with Iva and tells her to go see his lawyer. He then heads up to suite 12C at the Alexandria Hotel, where he meets the corpulent Mr. Gutman, dressed almost entirely in black. It doesn't take long before Spade loses his patience with Gutman, who issues vague threats but no details about the figurine. He's not an easy one to collaborate with, even if Spade's intentions were on the level, which they sort of are. Nobody connected to this bird seems eager to share much of what they know. Spade gives Gutman an ultimatum. Share what he knows about the statue by 5.30 that evening, if he is serious about working together. Spade then hits up his lawyer's office, where Sid, the solicitor, shares what he was told by Iva about the night of her husband's death. Enter red herring number... five? Six? I've lost count now. Anyway, despite saying the contrary to Spade, Iva wasn't at home that night. She had learned from her husband that he was out tailing a girl, and wrongly assumed it was an affair and not a job. Ah, don't you just love a double standard, Iva? You can cheat around on your husband, but need to snoop jealously when you suspect the same thing from him. Well, to be fair, you and Archer are both pretty ugly people. When you take everything into account, you probably deserve each other. But I digress. Or does Hammett? Hmm. Anyway, back at the office, Spade finally comes into contact with the boy who works for Mr. Gutman. They take a cab to the Alexandria, and Spade easily disarms the youth before knocking on the door to Gutman's suite. It's at this point that Gutman, who appears to be impressed a little by Spade's resourcefulness, relays the history of the Blackbird and admits to having searched for it these last 17 years. It was he who traced it to Constantinople, uh, sorry, Istanbul, it's easy to forget just how old this novel is, and then to the Russian general. Cairo, Thursby, and O'Shaughnessy were sent by Gutman to retrieve the bird, but the latter, too, pinched it for themselves. When Spade bluffs that he can produce the falcon in just a couple of days, Gutman offers to pay him richly for it, Though not a handshake, the men seem to agree to terms, at least casually, and Spade downs a drink in a single gulp. Too bad Gutman had previously drugged it. Yeah, Spade fails in his attempt to leave and gets kicked in the head by the youngster whose name we learn is Wilmer, somewhere between Fred Flintstone's wife and that pig from Green Acres, before falling unconscious to the floor. The next morning, Spade stumbles to his office where he sees that Effie also had a rough night after sleeping at her desk waiting for him. What a gal. Though his memory is patchy, he's sharp on the falcon business and he asks Effie to contact her cousin, who he knows is a university history professor or somewhat, and run the story of the falcon by him for legitimacy's sake. While she does that, Spade heads to Cairo's hotel room with the help of Sam, the detective on duty there, and he rummages around he locates a newspaper and a missing section from the financial and shipping section. The notice lists the arrival of a half-dozen ships into San Francisco. He circles one, La Paloma, arriving from Hong Kong, and phones to arrange two meetings, the first with Tom Polas of the police, the second with District Attorney Brian, who's been looking for him. Effie, meanwhile, confirms that the story of the bird appears to be legit, and it has her cousin quite excited. Over lunch, Spade and Tom clear the air and the cop reveals that Thursby has a few minor charges on his record and served as a bodyguard for a Dixie Monahan, a known Chicago gambler. His meeting with the DA goes less well, however, with Brian essentially accusing Spade of withholding information or possibly being behind the murders of Thursby and Miles himself. Spade insists that he doesn't know, but heads off in an angry huff when he sees no progress being made. At the Belvedere, it's revealed that Cairo just checked out 15 minutes ago. Back in his office, Spade and Effie are talking about the boat, La Paloma, and confirming suspicions that Brigid, Gutman, Cairo, and Wilmer were all there when a fire broke out on board. Suddenly, a tall man bursts in, asks for Spade, and drops a package on the floor before dropping down himself, dead. Unwrapping the parcel, they discover the Maltese Falcon staring at them, its black enamel shining ominously. The telephone rings, and right on cue, it's Bridget, who appeals for help and says that she's at the Alexandria. Something happened to her before she could finish, and Effie encourages Spade to get over there fast. Call it female intuition. He agrees, but he orders her to call the police and report everything, exactly as it happened, but to say nothing about the package. He takes that with him and leaves her to deal with the cops, and until they arrive, the corpse of Captain Jacobi from La Paloma. The call activates Spade's adrenaline, but not necessarily for rescue. Instead, he runs to safeguard the Falcon statue in a locker at the bus station, and then mails the keys to his apartment. He heads to Gutman's hotel, where he finds the beautiful Rhea Gutman, Mr. G's daughter. Well, she's been drugged by her own dad, and was cutting herself with a metal pin to keep herself from falling unconscious, Spade helps her walk and steady herself. He learns in half-garbled words that the three Caballeros have taken Bridget to an address in Burlingham, a town some 20 miles south of San Francisco proper. Spade calls the hotel manager to look after Rhea, and hails a taxi to Burlingham quickly. The property in question is a home for sale, and Spade acquires the keys from neighbors. Spade realizes after searching the house that nobody has been there for a couple of weeks. The penny finally drops, that he's been sent out on a wild goose chase, and that Rhea had her own little part to play in it. The reason? Presuming correctly, that Jacobi delivered the bird to Spade before expiring, they wanted to create some space and time between themselves and him so that they could search his home for the statue. When he returns home, Bridget is waiting outside, apologetic and afraid. But at this point, the layered cake of lies is so thick that nothing she says or emotes can be trusted. Entering his apartment, all three men are waiting with guns. Cards are finally shown, with Gutman admitting to having his daughter play the charade. Spade agrees to hand over the falcon in exchange for the 50000 that had earlier been discussed. Instead, Gutman renders some crafty subtraction logic, and tries to convince the detective that $10,000 in actual money is better than $50,000 in conversation. Spade explains that, even if he agreed, Nothing can go ahead until they arrange for the murders of Thursby and Jacoby to be pinned on somebody, the only sure way of getting the police to back off. He wastes no time in suggesting Wilmer would be great for the role, not knowing at that moment that Wilmer actually did commit both crimes. Gutman objects, explaining how Wilmer is like a son to him. Cairo also objects, and it's clear by this point that he and Wilmer have more than a little thing going on. Spade reinforces the point assuring the fat man that D.A. Bryan will surely stop investigating when he has a suspect, as he's more keen on strengthening his catch count than doing right by the law. Some back and forthing commences, with Bridget also being suggested as the fall guy. Spade agrees, so long as they can make her look guilty, but when it's made clear that Wilmer did actually shoot both Thursby and Jacoby, then the story to pin him to the crimes becomes the truth, by moral compass as well as convenience. Wilmer sits sullen and betrayed as he listens to his boss tell Spade the facts that he needs in order to give Wilmer over to the cops. It's hard not to feel bad for the young guy at this point, even if he is guilty. We're then treated to a short, meaningless scene, egregious really, where Gutman accuses Bridget of pocketing one of the thousand dollar bills that he was using as a prop. Spade takes her to the bathroom, makes her strip off her clothes to confirm her innocence, and only for Gutman to say, "'Ah, oh, just jokes, pal. I had it the entire time, and I just wanted to see if you could be trusted to turn over every stone.'" That sort of stuff. Passing Gutman's test doesn't really move things much further along. Spade calls Effie and asks her to get the falcon, giving her instructions. An hour later, she appears with the package. Gutman hungrily checks the statue, picks at its enamel, to find that it's a fake. At first blaming O'Shaughnessy and Cairo, Gutman eventually realizes... ...that the ruse was executed by the Russian general Kermodov back in Turkey, once he must have learned of the bird's real value. Well, he momentarily goes all Francisco Scaramanga on Spade, pulling a golden gun and insisting on the return of the money. Spade complies, but takes a thousand dollar bill as trouble money and to cover expenses first. Gutman calms down, and before leaving to continue his search for the bird around the world, he offers Spade a chance to join forces but Spade predictably refuses. Once they leave his apartment, Spade calls Polas and lets him know that Wilmer killed Thursby and Jacobi on Gutman and Cairo's orders. He then insists that Bridget tells him the truth so that he can protect her from any fallout from the police action. Through the tangled skying of crosses and double crosses, Bridget finally confesses to killing Miles Archer herself with Thursby's gun, seeing an opportunity to get Dixie Monahan's debt collectors off her heels and hoping that she could escape with more of the bird's profit for herself. Instead of protecting her, Spade bluntly states that she'll probably get 20 years and aloofly promises to wait for her. She asks him desperately if he doesn't love her and why can't they feed the cops some other story. More than love, Spade explains, he wants some justice for his partner's death. Even though he didn't much like him and was sleeping with his wife, It's bros before hoes, a partner's gotta look out for his partner. Plus, deep down, Spade knows that he couldn't trust Bridget O'Shaughnessy as far as he could throw her. She's tried to play every man in the story, including himself, so no matter how loudly his lust radar may register, he can't bring himself to seriously stick by her. And with that, the plot of The Maltese Falcon comes to an end. Spade returns to work in his office, and with emotional distance, back into the bed of Iva Archer. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Um, Hopefully, that filled in some of the gaps for you, if indeed there were any gaps. Uh, And we're now going to get into, as we always do, our PIPES scoring. PIPES is our acronym P I P E S. And Josh, as always, is the man to tell you what they stand for.
1: Yeah, so not to sound too much like a cheerleader. Uh, P is for principles, like the main character. So we rate the main character in terms of the storytelling. Uh, then we have I for investigation, which, of course, is the story itself, as well as, I guess, the proficiency of the writer, his style, his uh, aesthetic, I guess, the literary merits of, of of the writing. P is for perpetrator or perpetrators and we're talking about the villain or villains of the story, and we rate them in terms of how they influence the narrative and how they stand out. E is for environs. So we're talking about, in terms of the writing, the atmosphere, the locales, uh, just the general feeling that we feel the book is conveying to us in terms of of establishing the settings of the story. So then we have S for supporting cast. And that's, of course, the... The bevy of characters that inhabit the story, do they function as simple uh, narrative devices or are they three-dimensional complex individuals who strengthen the story as well as um, function within it?
0: Yeah, fantastic. And we give these categories a score at a 5.0. And that allows us an index to rank the stories of a season or indeed the show. And also gives us um, just a, a metric that we can use in, uh, in discussing the strengths and weaknesses of each individual story, tale, or anthology that we study. So That's we're right. going to begin then, as we always do, with P for principles. We've got Sam Spade. And what a guy, this Sam Spade, Josh.
1: Yes. Uh, my feeling of Sam Spade, this is sort of my portrait that I've realized for him. Callous, mm-hmm. ruthless—kind yep, of the yep. one of the same, but I think ruthless is an a- extra dimension to callousness because callousness yeah. is is almost is. like a lack of empathy, but ruthless is like an intentional
0: lack of empathy. yes determination. Yeah,
1: yeah. There, he's goal oriented. You know, that, so that's good yeah. on his on his resume. Uh, misogynistic, but this is more of a this could be like a societally a societally inherent quality, um, despite his own libidinousness, right? So let's just say he's a bit of a lech, and we'll go with that.
0: Yeah, happy to go with that. Very happy to go with that.
1: But though he won't admit it, he uses the women in his life, but but he also uses the men in his life as well. Like even his cop friend, Tom Polhouse, he utilizes to his own benefit as he would a hotel detective like Luke. And he sleeps mm. with his own partner's wife but despite his yeah. sexual callousness with women to my rec- recollection anyways in the novel you never actually see him slap or or harm a woman in in, a, in the story you know he punches lots of men and a lot of homosexuals in this, in this book but well one he punches one um, i think it's pretty clear wilmer uh okay oh, no you're right yeah he punches two about, right yeah yeah about wilmer yeah <laughs> so You know, like, he punches Ben in this story, but he doesn't actually assault women. He does degrade them, though. So, I mean, that's a different type of... He certainly
0: does degrade them, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's a certain type of, uh, I guess, debasement.
0: Any justification of that debasement comes later, like, when he really suspects that, you know, in the case of Shaughnessy, she can't be trusted, so he debases her by making her strip off, you know, like, he wouldn't probably do that upon first meeting her.
1: No, he definitely wouldn't. And I think... but it's it's very it's, but it's very kind of to me contradictory. But I guess we'll get into yeah. that when we talk about Bridget and yeah. whatnot. And of course, he's very liberal with Effie. I mean, you, you, like you can see that he's probably eyeing her for a possible tryst. But or he's already had he, one.
0: That's kind of how I read. Or he's,
1: it. Al- or he's already had one, but she's still loyal to him. And there's al- and you don't get kind of a like a big sister like a, like a brother and like a sibling quality between the two of them. You know what I mean? Like no,
0: not there's at definitely
1: all. something hanging between them that keeps her there, but he's also somewhat like at arm's length from her, but he wants to get he's more aloof, of that, yeah. but he's aloof about it. A- exactly. So he's definitely, you know, there's very liberal in that relationship. And even though he betrays Miles Archer by sleeping with his wife, it's clear that Miles Archer isn't a great guy either. So, and and the thing is, is that, and Iva seems pretty much into it as well. So both Iva and Sam Spade are pretty skeevy in that whole dynamic
0: they're, they're totally meant for each other. Like, they're both pretty, they're pretty corrupt figures, man.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's yet he feels compelled to avenge Archer. And, you know, that's why he uses Bridget the way that he does. So we do know he has a motivation for how he treats her, despite his own conflicting emotions about Bridget.
0: Um, well, I don't know. And, I don't and, know I agree with you there. I don't know that he... I don't know he's compelled... I think what it is, it's like society expects this of him. You know, the cultural norm expects it of him. The policing detective community expects it of him. And what would he be if he Mm. didn't do it? So I I think it's more like self-preservation than actually need to go out and do this for him. Right. That's what I think. Bros before holes, yes, but because Mm. my job demands it. It's almost like he's
1: concerned about the reputational damage and not like the, the morality of the situation.
0: That's how I see it, yeah.
1: Which makes sense for him to be a player in this kind of game. He has to, you know, function yeah, totally. that way. It, it makes total sense. And I'm sure, like, Hammett probably saw people like that in the agency. And, you know, maybe that was him himself, too. Who knows? I mean, it's hard to say.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what you said earlier about his relationship um, to people like Luke, you know, the as he was working for Pinkertons, there's this idea of, like, at the end of his career, he just kind of felt like he was... Uh, a, not even a bodyguard, but just kind of like hired help for this hotel business or whatever. I think that's why he's a bit like, if you think of Luke, the character, he seems quite cheerful. He's probably the most cheerful fucking character in the story. And I wonder if, if that's a bit of pity or compassion or or kind of like um, empathy that Hammett has for those guys and he's trying to write into the role a bit, you know, because he's a nice fellow, that dude. I'd like to, you know, he seems like the only one who has a positive relationship with Sam Spade in the whole story.
1: Yeah. Even to an extent, Tom Polehouse does as well, because you can tell that he likes Sam Spade or he likes working with them and he, uh, I think he respects him. But at the same time, Spade won't show him any respect because he treats his superior like garbage. Um yeah, he does, I- I'm sure yeah. Dundee, you know, is not a great person himself. He seems like a little, a little bit of a blowhard and I think he's a bit uh-huh. too rigid yeah. and stubborn. But... I don't know, like, how bad he actually is, just because he just has, the, he does, he's allowed not to like Spade for many reasons why we as a reader shouldn't like Spade either, right? So,
0: yeah, it, yeah.
1: is uh, Dundee a character, like an audience surrogate for Spade, or another voice, you know, to give a different perspective on him? Or mm-hmm. is he just sort of just a foil in the narrative? Mm-hmm. It, yeah.
0: Well, he's definitely a foil in the narrative, but that doesn't mean that he can't be one of those other things as well.
1: Absolutely. And he does, again, you know, like avenge Archer on a at least on a um, superficial level by turning in Bridget uh, to the police for, his, for Archer's murder, right? So he fulfills that part of what he feels that he should do in society, how he should behave. And it's very interesting because what, what you mentioned about him fulfilling this societal obligation. And then of course, the the last scene of the story, or the last passage of the story, is him going back to the office. And already, you know, he's putting his arms around Effie again. Although she's more hesitant now, I think she's she, since she learned about Bridget's fate, because the the narrative makes Effie like Bridget and kind of makes her woman's intuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it basically um, what's, validates. What's the word? Yeah. It, it's drug. It, it invalidates, invalidates it. her woman's intuition that they built her up with mm-hmm. having earlier, and just places her as just another female in the narrative. And now she sees herself as just another female in Sam Spade's life and not just like his loyal secretary anymore. And there's that feeling about it that he's just going to go back to the same way of doing things all the time. Oh, and Iva's here. So Iva shows up at, you know, and what's going to be the next phase in his life. Are they going to have a little bit of a tryst afterwards? You know, scandalous sort of like, is he going to marry her or, or is he going to eventually dump her? Like we don't know. Right. So they kind of just like life goes on sort of a situation. Um, with the one crisis averted, onto the next one, onto the next case at the same that's right, time, yeah.
0: right? right, yeah. Next crisis, enter, yeah.
1: And that's how Sam Spade operates. But the thing is, on how he's written, because Hammett, and we'll go into this in the investigation, he does not let you into the mind space of any of his characters. We have to assume what people are thinking and what they're doing, what their motivations are. We have to assume what Sam Spade is up to. We're kind of left in the dark. And as a character... Yeah. I'm also left in the dark with Sam Spade. Like, I think he's efficient at what he does. I think he has a knack for social engineering, uh, for conning people, uh, for manipulating people, and getting the results that he needs to to do his job. But at the same time, I don't like him as a character. Because of the writing, I can't get that extra bit of depth that I need to sort of fully embrace him. So... Mm -hmm. I find his character's intentions are ambiguous to me, the reader, and probably deliberate just to play up the mystery, but it prevents me from wholly embracing him as a character. So I would like, I think in terms of if the writing kind of dealt with him on a more psychological level, got into his background on who he is, even though we have that sort of revealing passage about him talking about this, this, this story about, what was the guy's name, Flint White or...
0: Flint, Flintcraft.
1: Flintcraft. And I think for some reason he's using that story as an allusion to almost himself because he in a way has two different, or he works two different lives. And he also shows how people work that way too. Like everything is unpredictable. People are the way they are. They're chaotic. And this (laughs) is the, the mantra that he's adapted in his own life. And I can see Hammett calling up like scenarios like that from his own life and putting that into the text. And I think that uh, communicates to us who Sam Spade really is he is an agent of chaos but he survives in it he rolls with the punches and he and, and the chaos just keeps coming and coming and he deals with it um, each time and that's what he does so overall I find him an interesting character but it's just missing something in his character that makes me want to root for him and I think that's very important when you're developing a main character for a story now this was authorial intention But I don't have to appreciate that as a reader if I don't want to, right? No, of course. So that's why I'm not putting Sam Spade into the high marks in terms of principle. Three and a half is my mark for the principle.
0: Okay. Well, I did go for a three. I was just below you there. And for similar reasons as I was listening to your appraisal of him. Yeah, Spade's morally ambiguous. Um, He just... He's described enough times like a devil in the opening chapter that we're really getting no trouble from Hammett's point. You know, like he's blemished, even if he plays the good guy. Like he lies, he cheats, he sleeps around with married women and his like his own partner, for goodness sake. Like that, I just felt like, okay, so he sleeps around with people, but I, I don't know. Like why, why does he have to be sleeping with his own partner? That just makes me dislike him from the start and yeah I, I think that must have been a deliberate that must have been a, a deliberate decision on, on hammett's part like he's not just not to be trusted he's not just the other guy he's the other guy that you fucking work with like ugh. You know? yeah he's a slime ball is what he is his moral compass does work though strangely enough like he takes care of o'shaughnessy in a rather memorable way um she thinks she's got him wrapped around her finger he's like no you're wrong you're illegal you've done things that are reprehensible um you've played every man in the story um just to try to get something else and i i know like i said in my summary that i can't trust you as far as i can throw you so i think he knows that that she deserves where she's going um Mm-hmm. He, i don't know man like sam spade to me is a very curious character because he seems really disaffected like he could swing either way he cares very little about life and about doing things that make himself happy he seems really smarmy around women and like you said that could be the bigotry of the time but it could also be a, a character point i mean especially around those women that he knows right and he doesn't seem to value any of these female relationships that he has that does he say thank you at all in this story to anybody does he say thank you to Tom or to Luca? Like I don't know. If so, I missed it. Like I know I that he must it, yeah. care, but I, but I, I just don't capture that caring very often. Like work, I think that was women, life, part hobbies. Of his like that was the missing. dude's life's just the dude's life's just pretty empty and. Yeah. He doesn't seem to have like, like Marlowe had his chessboard where he would have that moment of reflection and he would have people that he spoke to and trusted. And you knew that there was a, a roundness to his character. Sam Spade, I think, is as angular and as sharp and as flat in places as his descriptions of being a devil with all these pointed ears and pointed chin and yeah. pointed Instead
1: teeth. Of pitchfork, yeah. Yeah. Instead of picture pitchfork, it's like you he's, have a spade.
0: Well, that's right. Yeah. And there's something in that, isn't there? There's something in that. But, um, I went for a three overall. I understand his importance in defining a trope and defining the genre and the coldness and the aloofness, as we said, and that kind of arm's distance from the threat, arm's distance from the love. Like, I see it, and I and I understand its infancy here in the American tradition as Hammett kind of sculpts out this type of a figure, because we are mm-hmm. a long way away from Auguste Dupin right now, even though we're only separated by, yeah. you know, a few decades. This is a completely different character. And if if we accept that Poe's stories were the the genesis of this genre, then we've come a long dark way since then. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. That's we have, and, wa- wa- and we're war still will do that like, for you. Yeah. W- war will definitely do that for you, absolutely. But I think what's interesting about Sam Spade and how Hammett writes him is that you know now that we know, as as I mentioned earlier, about Hammett's background. Is the writing of Sam Spade as this unlikable character it was that Hammett's goal? Did he want to criticize someone like this that he knew in life, like an investigator who basically, in order for him to get his job done, he had to be this kind of person mm. for results
0: interesting and well, why don't we why don't we take that question and use it as a bridge into our discussion of investigation?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: What so, do you think as, I mean, well, as how I, do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, like I, I, I definitely feel that went into the story, the craft of the storytelling, uh, the narrative itself. Like, it, despite shortcomings of like the principal and uh, other characters, I find it, it it was very taut, Like, and it was well, there was implausible moments. Yes, like the stage altercation between Bridget and Cairo, and how Spade plays it off, you know, messing with Dundee and Polehouse about oh we were just trying to mess with you, and some of the, some of like the the, I guess rolling with the punches that Sam Spade does is a little, uh, you got a bit of suspension of disbelief and maybe a slight weakness in the writing to me.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: And then you have like filler yeah. of like Gutman pilfering the one that's $1,000 j- just so Sam Spade could debase Bridget in that strip scene.
0: Mm, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're not cheering for him in that scene. Like I, I find that I'm not cheering for Sam Spade in any of these scenes. And I don't know if that's something that is generic but I'm I'm not rooting for him. And do you find yourself rooting for him at any moment? Do you do you like him? We not in that particular that. scene, no. No, no.
1: It's very interesting because, I mean, I and probably many people have seen the film. And I know the outcome of the story, obviously. Yeah. But I actually felt sorry for Bridget in that scene. Like, I had great sympathy for her, which is uh, maybe that was intentional by on Hammett's part. I don't know.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, Just a human but again, basic decency. Human, yeah. d- basic
1: decency, I think, is what it comes down to. And I think that's what Hammond is uh, playing with. Uh, yeah, so, the, so like I said, it's the either the author reinforcing the ruthlessness of Spade's character and his resolve to end his goal, or something even to titillate the target audience of Black Mask. It could be both, right?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering that. I'm, I'm wondering if it leans a bit more towards the second.
1: yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, he had to make mm. his money, right? That, that, that's Course that's he the did, problem. Yeah. 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 Now, knowing that Hammett worked in San Francisco as a Pinkerton, you know, it gives a bit of verisimilitude to his writing. So his choice of not portraying the character's real thoughts was akin to him ma- making uh, the author and, he, and the reader uh, an invisible observer to the proceedings. So we have to guess the motivations of characters as to why they do the things that they did. Spade in particular. It's like he's playing a guessing game with the audience, just as Spade is playing one with the perpetrators. This makes the story suspenseful, very suspenseful. But despite being bold and the direct language that is being used in the storytelling, which is both equally admirable and shallow, it detached me emotionally from the story. And Mm. it gave me very little to be excited about when it comes to any sort of like literary flourish, with maybe the one exception I mentioned, the dialogue. Um, I talked about how yeah. he was a master of dialogue, and that is definitely clear in his in his writing, for sure. Um, the naturalism of it, like, it's just a standout to me, and it's the only real hint we are given to the subtleties of these characters that Hammond has injected into his tale. It, in turn, kind of lowers the grade on one of the other categories in our, in, in our pipes, um, which we'll get to, because of the... The direct language that I, that I talked about using the d- direct description of things, almost like he's describing stage directions, or almost like a screenplay, and that to me will affect other categories in our in our yeah. ratings.
0: Yeah, there's not a lot and of adverbs. Guess, in, in, there's not a lot of adverbs in the dialogue. I'm, you know, I think you're quite right to pick up on that. There's there's not a lot of um, explanation of how she says this or how he reacts to that. Mm-hmm. It's just very Absolutely. straight ahead.
1: Hmm. So in the end, when it comes to the investigation of our Radiance, the overall story is quite good. And it feels like someday it could be adapted into a very good film. Uh, (laughs) But I think with actors and directing, that will convey the emotional necessity to give it pathos for us to care. That's Mm. my feeling. Yeah. Despite that criticism, though, I think the narrative is solid like in terms of just like the, the story itself. And I give it a four.
0: Okay. Not well, a full just, five.
1: If every, all those other elements were there, like that I said, th- th- that that were lacking, if those elements were there in this story, it'd probably be full marks for me. Okay. Despite archaic descriptions of, uh, you know, the dynamic between men and women and stuff like that.
0: Okay, cool. Well, I, I was, again, just a half mark below you Um, I I like the story. I thought it was well-written. I agree with what you're saying about the dialogue. It's engaging and it is realistic. Um, In terms of the narrative itself, though, its structure and kind of the way it plays out, I'm just struck by how every single conversation in this story has stakes. Like, there's no downtime for the narrative. Like, never just a chat or just a laugh or just catching someone on the street or... There's no moments, like I said a moment ago, of Chandler's uh, chess playing Marlowe. There's no moments where Spade ever has to himself and the audience, the reader, a thought, a question, a reflection. You never see him do anything outside of his own head. Like I guess you could say that his story to to, um, O'Shaughnessy about uh flitcraft is the only break we really get in the story but even then that's to reinforce the theme of chaos and you know the the uncertainty of life like everything is a battle of wits in the maltese falcon every scene has a winner or a loser every conversation has to have someone coming out on top and you know I didn't find that as enthralling as I think I was supposed to. I didn't find that as gripping or as tense as I think I was supposed to. I mean, I certainly liked the scenes in the book, Josh, don't get me wrong, but but like the Mm -hmm. the, the tension was was at sometimes hard to take because Spade was never a victim and he was never accidentally a target. He never found himself in a situation that he didn't get out of a trolley bus. Exactly. Like he yeah. never he he would go on the bus and he would go to something he knew was gonna be tense and it was. He would never just find himself knocked out by some dude on the street. Like you know, he would he, he With was one drugged exception, once. the hotel When drug he was incident, drugged. That, that yeah. was it. He w- he was drugged, right, by Gutman. But in this story, he is very, very proactive. He is not reactive. And that makes him a driver of the story, absolutely. But as someone interesting to follow, somebody who fumbles and discovers things and steps forward and meddles a bit and falls back and then steps forward again and makes clever deductions and then hmm reflects on them, we get none of that. It's just straight ahead Sam Spade. And, you know, I felt like I felt like Spade saw an opportunity. He sniffed out a chance to make some money and to pursue something different. And he accepted all the risks that went with it. And he got all the treatment that he deserved. Like, the narrative is so straight ahead, it doesn't reveal anything about the world that I think you're getting in some of these other stories we reviewed so far this year. Because, you know, the character gets into situations and it opens up perspective. Sam Spade's perspective of humans does not change here. We have a little history lesson about the Order of the Knights of Malta. Um, but that's it. Like, There's nothing else I learn about the corruptness of yeah. people or any surprises. Like, Everybody in the story is exactly as you expect them to be. He is a gun-toting uh, hoodlum. This is a, a young boy who's being used by bigger authoritative powers. Here is a man who has an interest in art, but a bigger interest in making money. You know, it's just everybody is who, is who they're supposed to be in the story. And you said it. That we never see outside of Sam Spade's point of view. So, technically, this is like this is a third person story. We have an omniscient narrator, but I think what we're actually dealing with here is is what's called a first person plural point of view because it is written in the third person, but we're completely locked into Spade's character. We don't really observe or hear or sense anything that uh, cuts away from his experience. Like there's never a jump. Or there's never a movement to another character or another situation, or like we never get like we had in Farewell, My Lovely that breakaway um, narration of Bunker Hill, you know that area in Los yeah. Angeles. We never get like just a moment of exposition that isn't in that isn't from him going to place. And I find like like okay, for instance, we know that Effie does a lot of heavy lifting in the story, but we never see her do it. It's always something that she comes and tells us or tells Spade that she exactly. did. And, and so that's fine. Like, okay, that's the way the story's written, but it just sort of feels like the omniscient narrator is like a parrot on Spade's shoulder and l- yeah. like a little partner for him, you know? We, we yeah. or like a GoPro. Like a GoPro <laughs> a camera on his a head, GoPro maybe like he's moving around. <laughs> like I can totally see <laughs> I can totally see why why some people like that about this story. I do get it. And and I don't really mind the narrative principle of it, but I'm I gotta kind of, I'm really happy there's no B-plot in this story, man, because I don't think that the narrative approach would have been able to handle Hammett making more complexities for the story, because Sam Spade could not believably gone linear and also that other way, too. Like you know, you got to choose one yeah. of these, I think, in this genre. You do it the way Chandler does it, or you can do it the way Hammett does it, but you can't mix both. So I think what saved this story for me... And what, what made it a passing grade ultimately in investigation is that there is no added complication of a B plot because your perspective is so locked into uh, Sam Spade's character, you know, I don't think it could have shared the stage very easily with, with added complications. Yeah. yeah.
1: And and it's funny too, and I'll go into that in the environs, but there's almost like a stage play aspect of the writing. Like he's writing yeah. scene. You can tell how he probably worked on plays or you know, he would probably be. What's that dialogue? What's it? that dialogue? It's the dialogue, but we have conversations in rooms and in different in offices and in hotel lobbies, and the thing is, it's all through Spade's perspective. Even some of the major, like I think, climatic events of the story, and even, and of course initiating events of the story take place off screen. Archer's death is not on page at all. Like we, yeah. he gets a phone call and he hears about it, and then we have. Casper Gutman being killed off screen as well, off page, sorry, off page. Those big events happen because they're outside of Sam's perspective. So he only hears about it. So he is the only filter that we have. But not only that, and this again is why I take away the full marks for it, is because we only have that perspective. And I mean, that's interesting, but it 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 would be much better if we were in Sam Spade's head as well. But Mm -hmm. the problem with that is if we were in Sam Spade's head, then the suspense of the story would be drained out completely because we would know Mm -hmm. what he was Mm -hmm. up to.
0: That's a very good point, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can tell that we just read The Moonstone (laughs) with all of those other character perspectives, eh? Yeah. I wonder if that's affecting our our reading of this at all.
1: But I will say that if we go, say, back to Raymond Chandler and Marlowe and any one of those novels... Marlowe is holding information from the audience as well, and even though we're in his headspace, he does keep things away from the audience until the big, you know, reveal at the end. I mean, look at Lady in the Lake; how he yeah brings yeah. down Degarmo, the long goodbye right? like, too, and, yeah. hmm. and and makes things connect like in his mind. But Chandler doesn't show us his inner thinkings about that, and that is an authorial mm-hmm. device deliberately done to prevent the narrative from being revealed. You know, the end game That's being absolutely revealed. Right, yeah. So.
0: Deus S. So, yeah, yeah,
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, these big info drops at the end. And I remember us talking at long length about them. For Lady in the Lake, you felt that the info drop was kind of set up there if you wanted to piece it together. And I felt it was there was just two big sections of it. But that was a that was a good conversation actually. I might reread that book sometime soon.
1: Yeah, I watched a movie last night. Uh it's a Denis Villeneuve film sorry, Denis uh-huh. Villeneuve film from 2013-14, uh, it's called Prisoners, uh, starring Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal. Excellent movie, uh, but it kind of, it, it, it plays, again, it's like the Maltese Falcon, where it plays with, you don't know exactly what's going on, but because you understand, the, the I guess, the building blocks of any detective story the main perpetrator has to be someone that we've seen before in the story. Mm-hmm, They're not just mm-hmm. going to reveal a, a, a perpetrator out of nowhere.
0: You haven't So seen the real it trick
1: to telling a good detective story, a, whether it's in a book or a movie, is to take someone that's in the narrative, but reveal them in a way that tricks the audience still. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, because yeah. everyone's going to watch like an episode, I think we talked about this before, like an episode of, uh, I don't know, of Castle, and say, oh, it's got to be the guest star. He has to be the guest mm-hmm. star. Or it's or it's the opposite of the guest star. It's just that guy who was looking at the, yeah. the murder victim in that one scene, and then he gets interviewed at the beginning, and then you don't see him again. But then all of a sudden, it connects back, because that's, you know, the quote, Silence of the Lambs, you know, why do we covet? We covet what we see every day, right? And that, that's mm-hmm. basically the modus operandi of any killer in the crime genre, in film or in literature. So, Yeah. Everything is following that principle. And they've been doing it very well since the days of Dashiell Hammett. Like, they're still following that same structure. Yeah. But the difference is, from Hammett, eventually we get an evolution of this. We have guys like American authors like Ernest Hemingway coming in and taking this very simple stated way of writing, but also bringing great depth to it. And that's what inspires guys like Chandler and James N. Kane to build upon what Hammett started. So it's very important that we still consider Hammett a seminal author in this genre, but as a novel, we also have to address the shortcomings that necessitated the evolution of the writing
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and the further chapters of the uh, of the timeline, so to speak all right well, well, let's move on then to perpetrators. um I don't mind starting here I mean. You were talking a minute ago about that fine balance between telegraphing the perpetrator early on or just softly planting for the revelation later, but it has to happen at some point in the story. And it's it's rather clear that Bridget O'Shaughnessy is a perpetrator. Uh, from the first time she tells a lie, we know that she's not to be trusted. We know she's an opportunist, whether sexual or financial or whatever. She's the quintessential ice-cold dame, right? But Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure, buddy, how long that trope has existed. If it pre-exists this,
1: I'm not sure who was the first femme fatale that was written. I can see Bridget O'Shaughnessy probably being one of the first, being an early one, because because he was publishing this story in a crime fiction magazine, which was probably in the literary gutter at the time in terms of public appreciation, right? So Mm -hmm. you have you know the the P.G. Wodehouses, the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's, the Agatha Christies, even. Uh, I don't know, did Agatha Christie do a novel? But Oh
0: yeah, 1920, she started writing novels. Okay,
1: Mysterious Affair at Styles, right?
0: That was 1920, yeah.
1: Yeah, so you have the P.J. Wodehouses, the Arthur Conan Doyles, the Agatha Christies, establishing this Victorian idea of the detective, of the gentleman detective character, and the women being portrayed as either victims or murderesses, but... Even in Sherlock Holmes, there wasn't really a lot of like psychotic or sociopathic women, was there?
0: No, not really. Um, there's a lot of brain fever.
1: <laughs> a lot of a lot of brain fever. Ex- exactly. And <laughs> but, usually, if there was a woman perpetrator, mm-hmm. there was a reason why there was a, a believable motivation, an understandable motivation as to why they were they, why they were the why they were the perpetrator. So. Yeah. Is Bridget O'Shaughnessy the first femme fatale of crime fiction? Um, if any of our listeners know, uh, please comment on our Instagram and, and tell us what you think. Is there examples prior to The Maltese Falcon where we have a, hmm. a femme fatale? I mean, I'm sure there's some in literature that were, were that oh, were, yeah, were missing. Of course, missing. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 totally.
1: I keep thinking it maybe like it, I mean, I didn't like her as a character, as a person, but she was well written. Was the sort of the nemesis and the and the wife of uh thomas hardy's jude the obscure Uh, that was i I forget her name but she was a dislikable character and
0: uh she is yeah there's also one yeah
1: yeah, so there has been sort of like femme fatale-esque figures Mm -hmm. uh, i I suppose being portrayed
0: but in strictly detective fiction though like you know we're talking a detective
1: bit th- fiction and de- strictly detective fiction in that world yeah it's it's hard to say mm. well we yeah, I think, so we, I think if anyone we knows
0: that she's one of the first she's one of the first, yeah, and Fair enough to boot she's re- pretty reprehensible person, I feel like she deserved what she got, like we don't learn enough of her backstory to sympathize with her, and this is a failing of her character and the writing, which we've kind of already discussed you you put a good point on yes. to that. Hammett doesn't want to imbue her with sympathetic complexities, it's very evident. He wants us to think that she's a rotten woman and just watch out, because what rotten women live everywhere, and you never know when one might come up out of the grass and bite you. Like, there's clearly a story worth telling in here about her backstory, but Hammett's writing is so straight ahead, he doesn't stop to characterize beyond the action, or to really bother with um, motivations, but that ultimately makes her a weak character. She's sexy, and she's exciting, and she's unpredictable, yes, but she's not interesting because it's all surface level. But that comes back to what you said about the pulp. That comes back to the publication. That comes back to the Black Mask, as it's probably in the dirty puddles of literature. All these things that you're saying, you know. But for me, like I'm, I do wonder how, how much of this is typical of Hammett's other character writing. Um, I, I don't really know. But Bridget O'Shaughnessy certainly failed to impress as a literary character but maybe that's unfair because the story was never destined to become literature with that capital L you know what i mean like stripping it all down and yeah. deconstructing it the way we are might be doing it a disservice and i don't know buddy like i'm 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 just treading carefully here josh because We've been doing we the show know long enough their now. Writings. That's right, and we've been doing the show long enough now to know that the hard-boiled detective story is about thinning characters out, and it is about adding gray yes. shadows and not always answering backstories and things like that. So perhaps as part of that chaotic, you've been milieu- spoiled upon. Yeah. yeah. So maybe as part of that chaotic milieu, like she represents, and um, which the story itself is wanting to promote, like that—that's good. Like maybe maybe it's unfair yeah. to, to criticize it. Like I, I like. I like this figure better when a little more meat is on the character bone, though. So I think that she is still yeah. thinly sketched. I'm going to score a half point above what I think she deserves, um, because I appreciate Hammett is wanting to do something maybe a little different, and he's one of the first to do this. So I'm going to give her a three. But overall, for perpetrators, because we've got other baddies in the story as well, like Casper Gutman, Gutman Wilmer, Joe Pyro, all these figures, I'm going to go three and a half overall for my, um, my perpetrator score. It's good, but um, it's nowhere near the best of the genre. Even early pieces of the genre, like this one, I think we've, yeah. we've had better perpetrators. Uh,
1: before I go into the breakdown of my ranking for perpetrators, per- I, I say perpetrator more so than perpetrator, because even though like Bridget O'Shaughnessy is a big part of the novel, I still feel like just I'm not making a comment on his on his, you know, on his dimensions physically, but Casper Goodman is definitely a a, a a memorable antagonist for this story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was going to go and see what you said about, but going back to what you said about uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy and in terms of how Hammett is sketching the female characters in terms of her as a femme fatale and her as a, a complex character worthy of high ranking we were talking about how is this how Hammett is just like depicting women at this time. And that's just, you know, unfortunate, but I think Bridget O'Shaughnessy is being portrayed exactly how she is supposed to be. She is supposed to be a sociopathic um, murderess, essentially uh, full of greed and ambition. And that's exactly how Hammett is portraying her. And I guarantee you in his own profession, he probably ran into very similar People uh-huh. like this, so uh, you know, like or heard cases of, you know, like it's it's not it's not it's not completely alien in terms of. I mean, you talked about the Roadhouse murder, about you know that that the the, the sister yeah. who killed her half her Hill House, her, yeah, yeah, her half sibling, right? So that's underlying that too. Um, uh-huh. And I say, uh-huh. and speaking of Hammett, while I haven't read any of anything else besides the Maltese Falcon, I have seen the adaptation of his film The Glass Key. And the female lead in that uh, is a very, I thought was pretty well-rounded ra- out character. And she wasn't a sociopath. Like, she was actually like a decent person. So I don't think this is Hammett's depiction of women. And arguably, Maltese Falcon, even. Like, Effie, I think, is a very sympathetic figure. This, yeah, yeah, and I think Hammett is. conveys yeah. that.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I think to me, she's probably the most, most dimensional char- a female character in the novel.
0: Oh, and she's, she's got positive agency. The other ones all have negative agency. E-
1: exactly. Even though you feel bad for her and uh, you know what, well, she's stuck with this guy, right. And you get, you, you want her to kind of open her eyes and, yeah. and move around, but that was a world, you know, they lived in at that time, right? Like she was probably like, you know, a, a young woman probably didn't have, like, she, she lived with her mother or, or something. That's what the story is, uh, tells right, us. Yeah. And then she ends up, you know, working for Sam Spade, and how does she begin working for Sam Spade? What is her background, and what's going to become of her afterwards? Eventually, is Sam going to retire and then af- a- ask Effie to marry her? Like that's pretty much I can see in in her end game as a character. Yeah, it
0: could it could be. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I'll go watch The Blackbird and find out what happened between Sam and Effie, <laughs> or at least <laughs> at least moved. read about it, anyways. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So while like Bridget O'Shaughnessy is not greatly sketched out, uh very sensual character, obviously. They're portraying her as like this lusty redhead murderous type. So I mean there a lot of the 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 tropes of the convention are are in her. And maybe this is the beginning of the tropes of the convention. So you can't really go too much detail into it, but you also can't really downgrade it as much as possible because it was sort of the beginning of this archetype. Yeah. But I, I still found like Casper Gutman. I think he was an exemplary villain. You got a gentleman collector, gluttonous who is not satisfied, or sorry, who is satisfied, not exactly happy to see people yeah. put out of the way permanently yeah. for any change, for any chance, you know, at so-called dingus. Uh, I still find that term funny. Um, you know, to get his prize, so he'll do. He'll do anything to do it. Anything but for the dingus. He's also pro- but he's also portrayed grotesquely by Hammett. You know, it's kind of like Richard III, right? Like how Shakespeare portrays Richard III as this hunchback, although he did have scoliosis in real life as his body revealed. But he wasn't like this ugly, deformed, hunchback creature, you know? Like he was actually somewhat handsome in real life and uh, may not have been the villain people thought he was and may have done things that he did for more pragmatic reasons than just being utterly evil. And that was Shakespeare essentially portraying someone for political purposes had to be portrayed as evil because, well, right? Because this was the the Tudor dynasty and you can't have the guy that the Tudors usurped be look bad look good right so again we're getting the portrayal of like people and villains as grotesqueries like even joel cairo and wilmer they're homosexuals so obviously that thing in society that uh, they were pariahs in in society at that time because that thing was very because that type of attitude lifestyle was looked down upon by many people and particularly, people probably reading crime crime fiction novels too, because they're there for the curves, right? They're there for the women, and they're there for totally. like you know, kick, kicking ass and 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 uh, fighting crime and and uh, doing what you can to keep society, you know, keep the wolves at the away from the door of society, right? So it makes sense that you know they're portrayed the way that they are for the time. And Gutman is, like, even though, like, he's a very interesting character, he has great dialogue, and you can see, you can sort of get sketches of his motivation. You can tell Hammett loved writing the scenes with him, particularly with his character. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of, like, how Frank Herbert, like, described the Baron Harkonnen, you know, like, just this blobby kind of, like, monstrous figure uh, who also had sort of, like, homosexual tendencies as well. Like, is there some kind of connection between Gutman and uh, Cairo and Wilmer? and Wilmer gunned Gutman down right we know he did this right. and why did mm-hmm. Wilmer and why did Wilmer do this he was he wasn't just betrayed uh on a professional level he was betrayed probably on an emotional level as well for him yeah, to that's do an interesting like point that, right
0: yeah. yeah so there could have been there could have been like a triangular relationship there for sure yeah
1: there was something going on that's all i have to say and it wasn't <laughs> just a dingus <laughs> or, maybe <it> um,
0: <laughs> or maybe it was
1: or maybe it was i I I don't know, but I think he played it straight with these characters. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. He maybe pulled them from real life of people that he knew, but no matter what, because of our experience with the genre of uh, in film, in books, what have you, in comic books even, this is they are portrayed as like you know these very villainous characters, and they're they are they are very tropey, but. They're colorful enough to make me enjoy it, again, because of their presence in the story and the dialogue that was given to them. Uh, But they just fall short of greatness to me. And so I give it three and a half, same as you, in regards to uh, perpetrators.
0: All right. Well, the environment now is going to be an interesting category. Uh, I'll let you start Mm -hmm. with that, buddy, if you want to, because you said some good things a few moments ago about conversations in hotel lobbies, in Hotel rooms in offices. So I'll just let you talk environment before I share you my two cents.
1: Absolutely. So, the documentary matter of fact style that Hammett gives to the proceedings, they're not overly descriptive because we go to, as I, you know, just as you were saying, we go to Sam's office. We go to a hotel room, to hotel lobby, after hotel lobby. Everything is happening in rooms. Conversations are happening in rooms. Principal scenes in the story are happening in rooms. We only hear about other events outside of these rooms occurring because everything is in Sam Spade's perspective. He goes to his office. He goes to his apartment. He goes to the pharmacy to make a phone call. He goes to a hotel lobby. He goes into a, a taxi or, or he goes outside an apartment building or he's walking down the street. Everything is seen through his perspective. So we don't we, get, we don't get a very picturesque uh, view, I suppose, of San Francisco, right? Uh, okay, yeah. There is, I guess, a faint resemblance to the noirish atmosphere we're used to, and that's you know very indicative of the crime fiction genre, the pulp genre, because uh, of the gritty aesthetic and the dialogue. We have a colorful city like San Francisco reduced to a bleak panorama of these locations, so these locales, right? And It has that in, no pun intended, or maybe so, in spades. And, you know, there's nothing to be excited about writing-wise in terms of the literary, of the terms of the physical descriptions of the places that they go, but it's more than serviceable. So uh, I was going to give it a three, but I'll stay with a three and a half because I I think the deliberate depiction of this grainy version of a very kind of dramatic city fits the story quite well.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that those descriptions do fit the story quite well. But um, I do disagree with you on the overall mark. Like, um, I think that when it comes to depicting a world, whether it's a world from a character's perspective or whether it's a world from, um, you know, built of multiple perspectives and multiple characters. I think you've got a responsibility to transport your reader there, and it doesn't have to happen in the same way, and it doesn't have, have to happen to the same effect, but San Francisco, as a location, failed to come to life for me here. It could have been Boise, Idaho. It could have been Syracuse, New York. This, I mean, there were yeah. some places name-dropped, and obviously, yeah, okay, fine. There's enough signposting to know where we are geograph- geographically. Like we got Powell Street, and we've got um, Burlingame, you know. I mean, okay. So I've got the places, but there is nothing, and I mean nothing in this story to bring San Francisco to life. Any any locals, right, who claim this book proudly because it's a San Francisco detective novel, they can only do they can only do that in feature alone because making the city or the Bay Area as a character or coming to life, it sure was not a priority for Dashiell Hammett in this. And maybe maybe that's because it was trying to do the gritty thing that you're saying to tie it into the genre. And the, you know. mm. But, I mean, even with the trip to the docks, Josh, like, we could have been in any Harbour Town. Like, I remember when we reviewed The Black Echo, um, I felt pretty underwhelmed by the Los Angeles that Connolly was creating for us in that first story. Well, here, <laughs> by, com- by comparison, exactly, here, San Francisco is even less rendered. Like, I don't think fans of this story get excited about the setting. I like places and I like those places to come to life in a story. And that's a bias. Maybe that's a reader filter. Maybe you're but a Fleming I fan. Like, I'm a Fleming fan. I totally agree. Yeah. But e- even Hemingway, such a writer brings places to life. Like I, I find that yeah, like this is definitely. a failing. This is a failing mark for me personally. Colors, shapes, climates, tastes, smells, decorations, it all but absent in this story. And I thought this was the weakest part of the Maltese Falcon. I mean, this is a genre which will come to mean so much for shadows and shades and and kind of darkness and mist and all of those sort of tropey vibes. But this, I mean, I couldn't tell you what the sun was like. I couldn't tell you how dark it was. This just all, this, could have, this whole fucking story could have been in the sunlight for all I know. There's yeah. no, there is no, I know what happens at night, and I know what happens at day. But do I know anything else? Nah. Do I know? I know that Gutman wears black, and I know that uh, I think at one point Spade has a full American breakfast. But I don't like. I don't get any. Yeah, I don't get any pleasure in description here of any of these spots, any of these places. You know, if if San Francisco is corrupt, I don't know it. If San Francisco is virtuous, I don't know it. If San Francisco is green, lush, uh, dried out, I I don't know it. I don't know anything. And so I don't know how to read the characters who wander this landscape, at least through the way that they're rendered in setting. It really was a disappointment for me. I would like to remember scenes. And I think one of the reasons I won't remember scenes is because there's no imagery to grab onto for me, no lasting imagery. So I went for a two. I failed this category. I didn't give it a passing mark. I went for a two. Because for me, that's the kind of reader I am, right? Like I can't forgive some things and I couldn't forgive that. I just couldn't because I like it enough to want it in every story I read. And I think it's a writer's responsibility to create a world for his or her reader or their reader. And I think that in this one, Hammett created characters that you can follow and enough of a hook that you could get interested. But the the map, the board, you know, the game board is just a piece of cardboard. And that's kind of boring to me. So there you go.
1: Fair enough. Yeah. It's it's not a monopoly board, it's a chess it's it's, it's like a chessboard and it's a very naked, cold chessboard with the pieces on the table clear for us yeah. to see, and there's just no flourish to it whatsoever, right? It's like one of those like because the metaphor would be is like, you know, uh other mystery novel other mystery novels of the of this genre, you know, taking place years later, whether it's like, you know. Connolly or Chandler or what have you. We have a really nice chess set, you know, like the kind of like the 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 polished pewter steel ones with like really cool designs for like each of the chess pieces. The board is very like the is like marble and like it's or very ornate. It's kind of like, you know, uh uh Tyrell playing uh the the one that that Tyrell plays with JF Sebastian and Blade Runner, you know, like that real epic chess set. Then you have Hammett setting, which is basically like the kind of chess sets that you get like in the activity room of like of a library in a public school, like those really chintzy plastic <laughs> pieces. The fold-up board yeah, that's like yeah. cracking in half and stuff like that is covered in stains. Like that's basically <laughs> the San Francisco that Definitely Hammett gives us. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But even stains, even stains uh, have dimension. I don't. I don't. I just don't see much in this one. Anyway, uh, let's yeah. uh, let's move on to the final category of our pipes. Let's talk uh, the secondary players here. I think we would all I think we would both agree that Effie is great. Like she's she's maybe even too great for this story because she does a lot of heavy lifting. Spade says at one point, doesn't he, that she would actually make a great detective? Isn't that when she's like yeah. looking through Iva's bed clothes and stuff like that to know that she lied about being home when uh, Miles was killed exactly. or something of like that nature? I mean he he's right, but the bigotry of the time w- would never allow for Effie to become a character with her own, you know, principal agency. Um, and yeah. speaking of sexism as well, just while we're on that subject, you know, Spade's hands are all over her in this story. Like, yes, enough, enough. Around I think it just, yeah, I think that they've had something together as well. Like, it, it, is there physical intimacy? By the way, do you think it is a suggestion of anything more, or am I just reading too much into it?
1: I don't know. You could argue that, but I still think it's just a sign of the times. And I do feel okay. like he has his eye on Effie and but but because he works with her he's keeping her at a distance but I guess after with Bridget going to jail and stuff like that at the very end that very final sequence where he's Uh a bit more uh handsy than usual I think and she rejects and she basically like kind of pulls away from him it's clear that you know he's she's he wants to be he wants her to be your next conquest because well Bridget's going to jail or going to be hanged so (laughs) so I mean what's the yeah what's the difference like sorry he, you know he has to move on right
0: so well, here's same a question habit. for you then Old, old uh, habits i heard they do indeed here's something about effie then like do you think that effie is the start of this trope like i know we had mrs hudson but is she the mrs hudson the of the story or is she even money penny like what do you think in terms of the american tradition what do you think is she the mrs hudson or the yeah. money penny is this is she a continuation of the trope
1: I definitely feel that way. I remember when we were studying like um, film studies, when I was doing film studies back in university and in a textbook that I read, um, if one page was talking about um, the compositions of like shots and, you know, that Houston did for the Maltese Falcon. And the ones that they show is like, Effie walking into the room and lighting uh, Spade's c- making and, and putting the, you know, and wrapping a cigarette together and stuff like that, right? And the dialogue went on at the same time and how the camera was being used and stuff like that.
0: It's male fantasy, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it is. But at the same time, though, like, none of the touchy feeling is there at all, like, in in, in, mm. in the film. Like, mm. it's almost like a sibling thing in, in the film. I, I guess they didn't want to make Spade look too bad in the movie version. Um but going back to what I was saying, though, I kind of digressed there. Sorry about that. Um, mm-hmm. but, but anyways, the the description in the in the text said, "Well, Effie is his girl Friday," and that to me is just a typical thing. Like detectives always have a secretary. Like if you ever see any TV series when they ever have like the oh they're having a fun noir episode where everyone dresses up in forties clothes and you have like. I don't know, like Will Smith as a detective and then you have like Hillary <laughs> as his girl Friday or something like that, right? Like I'm sure there was an episode like that that was done at some point. Um, but anyways, I'm just saying is that like, it's, it's a trope and I, I think Effie yeah, is probably okay. the start yeah. of that for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, we've Watson, we've said I guess, is, about- is probably the original girl Friday ah, now that we think Yeah.
0: it. Yeah, Watson's probably <laughs> the original girl Friday. Uh, we've, we've said enough about Effie. I think we would agree that she's pretty strong in the story. I, I like her character- uh, even if we don't actually see her do the things, we know that she does a lot of lifting for, for Spade. Then we've got, as you said, Tom Polis, uh, D.A. Bryan, Captain Jacoby, Miles Archer, and Floyd Thursby, all the three of whom are only in it Dundee. in one or, or no scenes. And we've got Iva as well. And, I mean, how do you feel about the secondary characters overall? And Dundee, yeah. I mean, I, I went three and a half, but I, I thought they were good. I was They a were poor. interesting. You went for a four. Okay. Well, you're a little point above yeah. me, so why don't you say your bit? I'll give you the final word on secondary characters because the truth is uh, I don't have a lot to say about the characters. Um, Iva, as as I said in my plot summary, I think she kind of is a fairly corrupt figure. And corrupt's maybe not the right word, but I, I don't think that Iva was written with either bit of respect by Dhammet. Like, she's not just an adulteress. She's also, and she's complicit, the same as Spade is, but she's also rendered as an annoyance, like a, A jealous, annoying, nagging woman. And I don't like that stereotype. I find it dull. I find it, well, definitely demeaning. Um, And I just... But it is believable. And it, it's probably something I guess it's experience believable in,
1: in real life. And I don't know anything more about, you know, the background of yeah. his first wife or whatever. But we do know that, like, the, the tuberculosis that kept him away from the family, you know, it distanced uh-huh. them and ended up, you know, in, to their divorce. I'm wondering maybe is, like, Iva kind of him being resentful at, like, his wife being fed up with the the relationship because he had a distance. And that was kind of his way of getting back at his at his wife. Mm-hmm. Although he did donate, he did d- d- dedicate the novel to her. Yeah
0: that's right so it, i don't know josephine so it's fun to play revisionist history but we're just never really sure are we
1: yeah we don't have the facts right we're only guessing but maybe he was angry with somebody or or someone that he knew in his life or something that was like that that's all i can think of so and we have like pole house he's a sympathetic plainclothes man we have dundee the stubborn superior officer we talked about effie as the girl friday um all the characters, you know, they work well for the narrative, but again, they—they're just very kind of sketches of people, and we don't get to see their perspective or their on—we uh, don't get to see their perspective at all or their mindscape on how to. So, I mean, we—we we, we just know them; they're just people that come in and out of, of, of his life, and they don't really have any more function than that. They're plot devices. When you have supporting yeah. characters in any novel. They are, yes, on the surface plot devices, but if you are a proficient like writer and you have interest in conveying that story to your audience and world-building, you want to make your supporting characters come alive, right? Mm-hmm. And that was not Hammett's attention with this story. He was telling Sam Spade's version of events. And even then... We as an author only get to see his reactions to the events that are occurring. We don't know what's going on yeah. in his mind. We can guess, we can assume, and we can do that with the same characters. But to give dimension to these supporting characters is difficult. But I still feel that they're serviceable. So it well, the serviceable the isn't a
0: four. Like you know, I, I no. want to hear you really big these guys up because yeah. you gave them a four. That's that's a really strong mark. That's more than serviceable. So let's hear it. I'm excited.
1: You know, it's interesting when you're viewing these things and you think about something functioning in the narrative of the story and it should be fine. Uh-huh. But then once you kind of like look back and you consider, you know, like I'm just looking at my my explanation for my ratings for the supporting cast and I just don't have a convincing argument to bring it up to a four, which <laughs> is a pretty high mark in terms of things. Like, it is, because yeah. all I mentioned to you in my description was serviceable. I use very negative connotation in but terms of describing no, these Well,
0: things. You, you use you use decent decent connotations but none of them would speak of a four to me yeah, that's why i'm challenging yeah. you
1: like if we have bridget as the perpetrator the main perpetrator then gutman yeah. and cairo and wilmer also mm-hmm. go
0: down to the supporting
1: cast as well and for me mm-hmm. that's enough to make it a four
0: yeah boom fair enough if if you if you put them in there <laughs> if you put them in there that's fine yeah. And there's no reason why the supporting cast can't also be perpetrator. You know, I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to choose one category for them. They can, they can exist in yeah. both.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: We'll All right, over. cool, man. Well, that gives you, uh, let's just do the math here. Eleven fifteen. That gives you an 18.5 overall for the Maltese Falcon out of 25. How does that sit with you? Are you comfortable with that?
1: Yeah, I'm fine with that.
0: Yeah? Okay. And that it speaks
1: to me... my enthusiasm for the story. I think And I'm
0: two I'm two marks behind you there. I've got a Speaks for your
1: enthusiasm uh, for the story.
0: Six point five ten. And I'm at a fifteen point five, yeah. So I'm three points behind you there. Hmm. So not, not not a story that I was terribly gripped by. Uh I, I think I recognize its place in in kind of the tradition and certainly the history of the genre, but it's not a book I think I'm going to like pick up and read every year. It it just isn't there for me. Um it's it's Would you want to gaps pick up the size of the book? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about this before we sign off here for our listeners. I wouldn't (laughs) want to pick that book up with a, geez, you need, you need some sort of industrial claw. Everybody, Josh and I ordered the book, um, or Josh ordered the book. I have my own copy. I had this old little Penguins classic. um, Lovely. You know, the 1961 mine comes from just, it would have been a bookshop pickup, you know, some many years ago, but you've got this trade paperback. Uh, Why don't you try to describe it for listeners here? You can, we'll put it on our Instagram, but uh, it's a big one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's basically the size of, of probably what Black Mask Magazine was at the time. Or an atlas. Um, <laughs> or an atlas, yeah. So what it is essentially is I ordered this off of Amazon, and I remember seeing this book in, a, in, in regular paperback size at a bookstore pre-pandemic. And I remember seeing okay. it, like the exact okay. cover and everything. And this All is when right. we were reading Chandler at the time. Yeah, and so I saw this on Amazon. Oh yeah, that's the cover. I'll order it. It's only twelve ninety nine. Perfect. So then, when I ordered it, I got this like magazine size that almost looks like you're reading a screenplay because of like of how it's yeah in, in this format, right? Yeah, it's basically if someone went on and found like the Gutenberg printing press stuff that you can get like free uh, public domain novels from, yeah. and they basically printed it out. And then blew up a copy of like the paperback cover, printed it out, and, and binded it together, and then sold it off Amazon. And uh, they got my money anyway, so...
0: Yeah, yeah, they took your $12 to the bank.
1: They certainly did.
0: Well, buddy, I think that uh, we got a couple of exciting little episodes coming up for listeners before mm-hmm. we get on to our next big text, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, but you're going to release the beginning of your film review this uh, this coming week, hopefully, huh?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, lighting the pipes noir is going to be our little side series where I will be reviewing b- film noir. So, hope you in- enjoy that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. And just to you know, just to coincide with uh, this particular episode of lighting the pipes, I'm going to be reviewing the Maltese Falcon by John Huston. So,
0: nice one. Um, That'll be great. Yep, A little bell, bell, companion bell. piece to today's conversation.
1: Yeah, a little companion piece, and I'm going to have a little introduction to like the world of noir, and then I'll then I'll get into the review and talk about the history of the, the of the production, and and then my own kind of review of the movie itself, and look for more of those coming down the road. Um, yeah, yeah, they're they're going to be you know little short little Shorter. pockets, oh yeah, little, little yeah. pocket-sized episodes that you can get. You know, we'll have them between our our main episodes of lighting the pipes for you to uh, yeah. enjoy. So commuter we'll size
0: we'll call them commuter size commuters there you go <laughs> commuter friendly and um, I guess as well we should say that one of the episodes we're going to put out there shortly is um, another LTP select episode but instead of going to our Sherlock Holmes stories which we will do again we'll come, we'll come back with a couple of those uh, during our downtime but we're going to um, resurrect an old recording uh, I say old, five or six years ago, an old recording when Josh and I were going through the Ian Fleming James Bond novels as part of a project uh, that led to our Bond by Numbers podcast, which you can check out if you want to. Uh, a couple of those short stories from Fleming's anthologies were quite quite criminal in in their um, in their presentation and in their plot. I mean, you could say all the Bond films and stories are criminal, but some are some work much better. In this in this environment than others. And the one that we're going to present for you is quite a curious little tale. It is called Quantum of Solace, which is, of course, the title of the 2008 Daniel Craig film. But the short story, Josh, if you recall, is much different. So I look forward to... Uh, much, to, much different. To, to resurrecting that story and presenting it as a Lighting the Pipe Select um, adventure as well. And we'll we'll do a little introduction for that when the time is right. But that's coming down the pipeline. And I believe, buddy... Um, though we haven't really agreed to this yet in writing, we're going to be looking at um, Robert Travers' Anatomy of a Murder.
1: That's right. I agree. I haven't done it in writing yet, but I definitely agree
0: (laughs) with you. Right. So that's our next book. That'll be our next big read. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to bringing that to you very soon indeed.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, my friend, if... Lots of uh, great stuff coming up. Lots of good stuff coming up. And if there's nothing else for you to say, um, then I'm quite happy to uh, wish our listeners the very best and... Catch us on Instagram or email us at lightingpipes at gmail.com. Let us know how you think the season's going. If there's a book, if there's a a story that you'd like us to review or to check out or just to talk about. Thanks very much for your continued patronage.
1: Yeah, thanks for sticking around. And uh, we hope you liked our review of the Maltese Falcon
0: and um, more to come. Yeah, see you soon. Take care, everybody. Stay safe.